What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. And I have a very special treat for you guys today. I, as a rule, I really don't like um, interviewing people who you know, are, are campaigning just because like, I, I don't know, man, like there's some of that, some campaigns are great. Some campaigns are kind of a grift. Uh, but I had Jonathan Howell reach out to me and he's running for the uh, congressional, uh, for New York's 14th congressional district. Uh, he's actually running against AOC. Uh, but that wasn't his opener. Like we, we were talking about drug policy and he's very passionate about it. And this was a conversation that I really enjoyed, man. I got to talk to somebody who not only understands the value in ending the war on drugs, but he also has a nuanced perspective on that. You see, Jonathan is a uh, public defender in family court out in New York. And I cannot tell you guys what that what kind of mentality you would have to have to go into that and actually help out addicts who are facing the state, fighting the state, wanting to get custody back. Um, Jonathan has a unique perspective on this very important topic. Uh, on top of that, he's also out there plugging in, doing the work that's necessary. And this was just a wonderful conversation with an absolute, absolutely spectacular uh, ambassador for the message of liberty. So without any further ado, here's Jonathan. All right, Jonathan, thanks a lot for joining me. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jonathan Howe. You're running for New York's 14th Congressional District. You are seeking the Libertarian Party. Do y'all do primaries for that, or is that just... We don't have a primary. We're going to have like a little endorsement party uh, uh, in about two and a half weeks. We're going to all get together. The Queen's Libertarian Party will nominate me and uh, make me one of their candidates. Uh, so yeah, I'm running in New York 14. Right now, it, it's about half in Queens, half in the Bronx. So it's like Northern Queens, Southern Bronx, currently represented by AOC, who everybody knows. Uh, I didn't get into the race just to run against her, but she happens to be my congressperson. And when you think about it, you know, she is the story of like challenging the establishment, a total outsider, challenging the establishment and winning, and then becoming the establishment. And yes. so what I'm trying to do is to say, look, it, we agree that we here in the 14th Congressional District, we want to challenge the establishment. Okay, how do we do that? We need to run on the same ideas. We need to run on peace, justice, and a clean planet. We do it through individual liberty, and we do it with term limits. So I've imposed a two-term limit on myself. So if I happen to get elected and then get reelected, that's it. I will not be in politics ever again. Uh, and I think that's the problem, is that you get idealistic people. Let's give AOC the benefit of the doubt benefit of the doubt say that she's idealistic she thinks the green new deal will work where is she now you know she's just nancy pelosi 2.0 and that's because you spend most of your time campaigning once you get into office it's all just about job security uh, so you know by imposing a limit on myself i can show you i'm, I'm not going to be no one's going to want to buy me out i'm, I'm not going there's no reason for me to, to compromise on my principles and so i'm right, going to right. vote for the things that i'm telling you i'm going to vote for I'm going to use my leverage the moment I get it. You know, there, there was a big movement uh, on the left, I think, right, yeah, right after the 2020 election to say, force the vote on Medicare for all. That AOC and the squad should say, we won't vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker unless we get a four vote for Medicare for all. We know it will fail, but we want to see who will actually vote for it. And all the left people were like, do it, do it, do it. And like, they could have. There would have been no downside for them. And they didn't do it. And my question is, why couldn't they do that for something that we all agree on, that the left and the right agree on, largely, like something like decriminalization of marijuana? Why couldn't they have forced the vote and say, we won't vote for Nancy Pelosi unless we have a vote on decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana on the federal level? And the reason is she's more concerned about her career than about mm -hmm. the issue that she ran on. And the only way we can ensure that won't happen is the term limits. And the only way we can do that right now is to sell some votes. Yeah, and and what better person to uh, go in there and and really be the lone ranger than the libertarian, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had one for a little bit. You know, we had uh, uh, Amash when he when he switched to libertarian, and he made this is going to sound like almost uh, self defeating. He made a lot of good points. You know, he was pointing out that there's a problem with how amendments are made to bills, not just the bills themselves, not just the amendments themselves. But how Nancy Pelosi and when the Republicans have it, how they run the Congress so that you, unless you are part of the you know, centrist majority, 
you're not getting your amendment in. And even if you do get it in, it's never going to come up for a vote. Or you're not going to get your bill in. And even if you do get your bill in, it's not going to make it through committee. But it's not a true democracy because there's so many roadblocks to the actual good ideas that most people agree to. Uh, and it's something that I didn't really know much about until Amash started tweeting about it all the time. Like, you know, there hasn't been any amendments from a you know, minor party member in this many days. You know, he'll tweet something like that. It's like, oh, damn, I didn't even know that's, that's how it worked. And it's because of the everyday Republicans and Democrats are afraid to challenge party leadership. Because party leadership is the duopoly. The party leadership of the two parties are completely on the same side. They do everything together. You know, they, they, they always vote for the wars together. They always vote for the spending together. Uh, they never talk about the Federal Reserve together. You know, all, all of that combined. And then anyone who dares to challenge them ends up getting out pretty quickly. And even when you do challenge them successfully, AOC is the example. There's incentives for you to just play ball. And, and something I say a lot is that human beings respond to incentives. Like, if, if this is going to work for me, this is going to make my life easier. You know, I can delay the thing, the idealistic goal that I want for comfort and for a guarantee that I can keep working on it. And you, you can lie to yourself. You can say, like, oh, we'll get there down the line. But yeah. we, we see how these idealistic people run for office and how quickly, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of them just completely turn. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Like, it's not a big mystery. And we don't have to assume they're all bad people because they ran for office, but there is, there is an incentive once you get there to become, to become something else, which is what already existed there. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, um, adamantly, adamantly, um, maintained, you know, across yeah. the board. And I, I think with AOC in, in particular, it, it's, it's a curious case. Cause I remember 2016, you know, Bernie Sanders ran and that was the big, that was the big thing, you know, like that was at the time was such a revolution, you know, that he was wanting yeah. to do. And it, and it created this progressive movement. You know, I mean, they, they really started to come out the woodwork and AOC was born out of that, you know, out yeah. of that, out of that push. And um, I remember the grassroots, you know, movement because I came to the Libertarian Party from that side. I, I came from the left, you know, mm -hmm. always anti-war. Uh, but I also had a, a very uh, egalitarian mindset. And uh, when when Sanders kissed the ring, I walked away uh, wholeheartedly from anything associated with Sanders. But I did watch with, um, you know, some interest into that grassroots movement and AOC coming up. I was like, well, what's this? And then seeing her turn, man, I mean, just and absolutely put all of those things that she campaigned and railed on on the back burner and nobody in that movement bats an eye at it. And the, the people who do bat a movement get, you know, banned from YouTube. That's essentially what it is. You know, and the, the, the few of them, um, I actually went on, uh, Graham Elwood's show. He's a friend with Jimmy Dore. He's often on the Jimmy Dore show, which is like a big regular streaming. And he does great, like far left anti-government stuff. Like he has a show called government secrets. Um, and, and that's what he was all about. He was like, AOC completely turned her back on us. And I will never vote for a Democrat again. And you said you're a public defender who's pro-environment running her seat. So I had you on. You're the first candidate I've had on in two years. But like people who are like the committed far left people are far more open to my campaign than just about anybody else that I've uh, come across, especially in my district. Like you, you talk to a regular person, they're not thinking about politics right now, unless I just talk about the mandate. Uh, but you talk to like a far left person about how AOC has failed and those places where we can overlap where I can actually make some progress, you know, anti-war, anti-drug war, you know, demilitarizing the police by de you know, ending the drug war and defunding the cartels, that type of stuff. They're into that and they get really excited. And I don't need to convince them not to vote for AOC. Like they're already at that point. And I, I was very, very glad and surprised to find how many people are already in that position that I don't really have to wow. go out and convince, don't vote for her. I doubt they're going to vote for the Republican. Yeah, you know, I, I don't see that happening. So I'm actually becoming more and more optimistic as time goes by because pe people who are really into her got really into politics because of her quite often. And so they followed her. And the, the ones who are on the ground who can just speak their mind and don't have to go through any, you know, censor, they're not happy. Like, they're honestly not happy. I, I was uh, helping out on an LP Queens, the, the Queens Libertarian Party campaign. 
And there were two people who had done canvassing for us who had gotten, you know, petition signatures. And they're like, yeah, we got into petitioning. We learned how to petition. We became professional petitioners in AOC's campaign. And now, like, we're going to come help you in your campaign. We hate AOC that much. That was, you know, six months ago. Yeah, so it's not even, like, the most recent horrible stuff she's been doing. But just her record of rhetoric over actually doing anything. See, that's... That, and I'm sure just to kind of get back to you on your point about, you know, approaching people, I'm curious, is that kind of, is that a particular demographic that that you were seeing that's fed up with AOC or is that kind of across the board, just your middle of the road voter who actually shows up at the polls? I would say it is the, the people who've been locked in their home for the last few years. So they've been very active on social media. They've okay. been watching politics through social media. So I would say it's the younger demographic. Okay. Um, we're at least in my area of Astoria, like the part I live in, it's all old Greek people. They don't know who AOC is, and I find that very entertaining. In that. Wow! And they're, like, they're like, "Yeah, we'll put up a sign for you, whatever." Against two for what? Okay. Uh, but like a, a lot of people who are you know younger generation following it through social media and actually see her regular posting. I, I find the more familiar people are with AOC, even in this district, the more open they are to listening to me. Uh, and there's some people who just be like, "No, I love her." And then the conversation ends. So I don't get to learn all that much. Um, But like, honestly, I I expect to be going out and, you know, saying, hey, I'm running as a libertarian for AOC season and to get spit on. Like I I expected to get fired. You know, I expected all these horrible things to happen. Uh, And so far, it's been largely positive. Some people roll their eyes every now and then. Like one of our friends will, you know, uh, unfriend my wife and I on Facebook or something like that. Okay, well, I guess I guess we dodged a bullet with that one. but beyond that, no, I've been very, very surprised by how open people have been to the idea. So um, when you when you have conversations, and we'll get into drug policy in just a minute, because uh, I'm really curious about hearing, you know, kind of what you want to yeah. see happen in that regard. But when you have these conversations standing out, obviously a hot ticket item right now is mandates, is vaccine passports and in order to stand out from AOC in particular, I'm sure you're having to take the negative on that. How well, is it, that conversation going? Well, it's weird that I have not seen a single headline. And without me ever looking it up, I would not know what AOC's position are, is on mandates. Like, she has not spoken about it. it. It is not something that she is, like, big and out about. And I think it's because she's hedging her bets. Now, the neighboring congressman, Richie Torres, was saying that you should be on a no-fly list unless you get a, a vaccine. And in his district and in my district, in the in the Bronx part of it, uh, if you are a black man under 35, I think it is, you're 40% chance not to be vaccinated. So they were essentially saying we want 40% of our young black men not to be able to travel. And and he was lauded for that. And it, it totally grossed me out. I mean, obviously, as a libertarian, I'm against the mandates. It's your body. It's your choice. You can make mistakes with your body, and or you can be healthy with your body. It, it is your choice. And the idea, first of all, of coercing people into getting a vaccine, I think is disgusting. Uh, and I think the idea of forcing it onto businesses to enforce here in New York City, where they have to check your passport uh, anytime you go inside, I think is illegal. Uh, I do think it will eventually get struck down, or we will look back in it, look back on it in shame. Uh, so I'm vaccinated. I got the Johnson and Johnson in, in like September. I waited a little bit just to see if anyone's legs fell off or whatnot, but I haven't eaten indoors. I'm not going to play along with this game where you have to show your vaccine passport to eat indoors. There's a few restaurants where you can sneak in. Well, not sneak in. They'll let you in. Uh, I'm not going to name them. So I don't be, a, I'm not a snitch. Uh, but other than that, I, I've just been cooking. I've been ordering out. Astoria is great for street food, uh, but I'm not going to play along in this system. Not when so many of my clients cannot participate in the system. Either they're immunocompromised, they've been told don't get the vaccine, and maybe their doctor is wrong, but they've been told by their doctor not to get it. There's some people who just don't trust the government. I wonder why. The government just took their kids away in the middle of the night. You know, yeah. uh, These people don't have the vaccine or they're undocumented, and they're afraid that if they go to one of these centers and they're asked for their ID, they could get deported. You know, so these types of people are making a rational decision, and you're punishing them. You're telling them they can't take part in you know society it's not just that you can't go eat at those restaurants you can't work at those restaurants you can't be a delivery person for those restaurants you can't be an uber driver to and from those restaurants 
in order to work, you have to have a vaccine now in New York City. I, th I think it is. We're going to look back on this in shame. I really hope. I really hope. Yeah, I mean, I I don't see how we couldn't, to be honest. Um, and you you have your finger on the pulse. A admittedly, I've never been to New York. I have no idea. The only idea that I have is probably a caricature, you know, com compared yeah. to what, what it actually is. A but, lot of um, it's more caricaturable than than most people care to admit. Like, there's a lot of New York that's exactly what you're picturing. That's so that stereotype is kind of yeah. on the There's nose. a lot of that. There's a lot of everything else. That, that's the thing that I found. That, like, I feel like I live in a small town where I am in Astoria. It's just like okay. local people walking around. There's a pasta factory where they make fresh pasta. There's a place where they make uh, sausages, like local little butchers and shops. When you go into, you know, you know, Wall Street is Wall Street. You know, about, you know, the east side is the east side. You know, those stereotypes are, are somewhat accurate. But there's so much more to it. I love New York. And if, if I didn't love New York, I wouldn't be here right now because it needs to be saved. Like this is the last chance. Like we're going to destroy all that flavor I was just describing. The little Greek coffee shop, the little uh, you know Chinese restaurant, you know that does authentic buns or whatever that's on you know every corner here. Those are the ones who's dying. There's going to be no point in coming to New York City in ten years if we continue like this. And it, it is accelerating. I, I live on again the best area for food I think in the entire city, and I live right next to a train stop. It's at the end of uh, two lines. And right along the train stop, there is now a line of stores that say uh, a Popeyes, a Starbucks, uh, a few other, there's a TJ Maxx. They put in all these chain, a Krispy Kreme at the corner. And it all used to be small local shops, like a, a local glasses store or a local you know coffee shop. And when I moved here just four years ago, they were all local stores. And this entire line has just transformed into chains because they all went out of business about... 19 months ago. I wonder why, you know, all of it at once. Man. And, and you wonder why, you know, you wonder who this is for. You wonder who these stupid rules are benefiting. Like there's, there's no hard science people who can look at the numbers and say, we need a lockdown. We need a mandate. We need all of this because it's saving lives because the numbers don't say that we just have the worst outbreak ever. And we have the mandate. 90% of people are vaccinated. Everyone wears masks everywhere. It's not helping. It's, it's not solving the problem. So why is there so much force for it? It's not just that people are scared and they're doing irrational things. Someone is benefiting it. Yeah, someone always benefits. Yeah. And in my mind, it's the developers and it's the the big chain restaurants who can take over all these leases that you know haven't been increased for 20 years. So the little family owns has owned the place for 20 years. Now they're out of business and they can scoop up a nice cheap lease. That's my conspiracy theory. Man, and that's so so sad because that's the appeal right to yeah. a place like new york it's not just like the buildings and stuff but it's all the little shops i, I went to uh when i go somewhere right like i'm, I'm in oklahoma so like when yeah. i go to a big city or something like that i'm not wanting to go to mcdonald's or starbucks yeah. like i want to see the local flair i want to see what that flavor is we're going to become uh, a giant truck stop like that's what new york is going to be like when you, you know, like I, I love doing cross country drives. I've driven through Oklahoma. You, know, you, you pull off at the truck stop, there's a McDonald's, there's a, a chicken place, there's a, a you know, 7-Eleven type, you know, convenience store. Uh -huh. That's going to be every block in New York City. If we, if we don't stop what we're doing right now. Wow. Man. Well, let's, let's segue into kind of what you do. So you, as, as you talked about, you're a public defender and family court, um, Give us give us a ground floor look at what that is, what that looks like. How how does drug policy in particularly your congressional district, how does how is that affecting families out there? Well, I'll I'll just tell you how a, a case nowadays will begin. I'll get an email in the morning saying these five petitions are about to be filed. Here's the names and the numbers of the of the potential clients. And I'll start calling them and I'll say, Hey, you know, my name's Jonathan Howe. I'm a lawyer with you know, my organization. Uh, do you know that you might have a family court case coming in? And usually what happens is I get a story of the worst day of someone's life, which was the day before. You know, this happened. You know, my, my husband did this or my wife did this and, you know, or I was on this or my, this happened to my child. Whatever it is, I get that. And about five or ten minutes later, we're in court virtually and we have to make an immediate decision. Do we want 
your child return to you today? Are we going to have an emergency hearing today? Or are we going to wait and gather evidence? Um, and usually I get you know, 15, 20 minutes max to speak to a new client, get their entire life history, get, get a, an idea of what it is that brought them here to court today. Uh, and then I go in and I'm their lawyer and we, we start litigating it. How does drug policy affect that? I mean, it, it's huge. Um, if you have a baby in America, you usually have a baby, they hand you the baby, you kiss it, and now it's your baby. In the Bronx, if you have a baby, they're going to check it for drugs. They're going to screen every single baby at all of the hospitals in the Bronx for drugs. And if anything comes up, you have an ACS case now. Now, if it's just marijuana, nowadays, luckily, they're not going to take your kid from you right there, then and there. But until very recently, they would. That's what they would do. They would take your kid from you in the hospital, and then you'd be on the phone with me the next day. Uh, now it's everything else. And then, you know, the whole issue of fentanyl being in everything makes that very difficult because you could be smoking a joint while pregnant. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But now that joint has fentanyl on it. And I, I used to not believe those stories of like people putting hard drugs on weed. So I'm like, that's such a bad business decision. You're wasting money. Uh, but with fentanyl, it's so tiny and potent and cheap that it actually has happened. And I, I, I know for a fact that it has happened. Uh, and it's come up on people's drug tests. And all of a sudden, their baby is born with an opiate. And now they're an abusive mother. Um, and it's going to be a while before they get to live with their child again. Um, I mean, that's basically it. And then just so often, courts will say if they're not, if you know you have a drug problem and you're not in treatment, then you are by definition not planning for your children. And if you're not planning for your children, then your rights will be terminated eventually. Uh, and it kind of ignores what addiction is when, yes. when you say that. Uh, and I mean, I get where they're coming from. Like we, we want a permanent solution for this child. We can't wait forever for them to get better or, or what, but it ignores what addiction is. Like it, it doesn't actually work to keep families together. If you're going to say that, you know, a period of you know, drug use without being in a rehab program is by definition, not planning for a child, but under at least New York law. And I believe it's, it's pretty much universal. If you're actively using, if you're not in rehab, you're not planning for your child. And if you do that for 15 out of the most recent 22 months, your rights are going to be terminated. And then the worst thing that they do, they get to that point. You're, you're maybe just trying to get yourself you know, better or you're, you're still in the depths of it and you get a call from me and I say, hey, they filed a termination proceeding today. They want to terminate your parental rights. We have two options. We can go to trial and say, no, it's in the best interest of my child who I haven't seen in 15 months. You know, regularly to be with me and to not lose my rights, it's a pretty uphill battle. And if you lose, you never see your child again. You have no right at all to see them. Or we take a plea. We do what's called a surrender. You surrender your child to the agency or to the, the foster parent or to the adoptive parent. And in return for doing the surrender and not making them go through a trial, you can sign up a visitation agreement. So you can have a legally binding visitation agreement so you have access to your kids. But that's what they hang over you. It's all or nothing or you plead. All or nothing or you plead. And so people who are, you know, mid-recovery, not sure if they're going to be good enough to make it through trial and not slip up at all and be completely perfect like they're expected to be, they're pressured into taking these pleas and having, you know, these visitation agreements and not, you know, losing their parental rights. They lose their parental rights and they get to see their child. If they mess up too much, that goes away too. Uh, the organization I work for and a whole bunch of other ones and just, you know, parent advocates in general actually got a bill through the Senate, through the assembly to say that if you lose at a trial, you can still petition to have visitation rights oh. uh, so that it's not hanging over you. And they passed it and Governor Hochul vetoed it. Mother. One of her few vetoes. I don't know who has an interest in this. That's more than that of, you know, the democratically elected legislator of New York, but one of the few bills she vetoed at the beginning of the year was that bill to not have this, you know, this incredible coercion over parents who are accused of wrongdoing, not already found guilty, but accused. Right. Not even yeah. gone to trial. I mean, literally have not gone to trial exactly. yet. By definition. <clears throat> so as it stands right now, so I understand that that would have opened it. Once that decision is made, you go to trial, you lose, there is no recourse. You can't uh, appeal the decision. So, you know, if, if there's a, a legal issue, 
uh, you know, if there's a, a mistake of law that the judge made, you can appeal it. But just to be clear, there's multiple trials in a family court case. The first of the one, should you get your kids back or not? Is there a risk? Often you don't even need a trial for that. It's just kind of like you do a service and they send the kid home. Then there's a trial of did you neglect or abuse your child in the first place, whether they're back home with you or not. And then if you haven't gotten your child home, we would have that third or second trial, the termination of parental rights. Um, I've had clients where, you know, on one case, we'll have four hearings. You know, we'll do two emergency hearings, a fact-finding hearing, which is the trial, and then we'll do a TPR hearing or we'll be getting ready for a TPR hearing. Whereas many of my criminal law colleagues, you know, God bless them, they're doing the Lord's work as well. Um, they've never done a trial. I have four trials in one day <laughs> coming up uh, in two weeks. Like it's just every single day you're litigating. The rules of evidence are very lax. Hearsay is allowed. And so it, it's fun. I get to go in and verbally spar with people all day, every day. Um, but it does get a little bit tiring. And especially when you do that and then, you know, let, let's say I make a, not make a mistake, but I lose an argument. Like, God oh, damn, I lost an argument. Oh, okay. Like, you know, it's fun for me. And then you have to call your client and translate it for them and be like, okay, when the judge overruled that objection, that means we're not going to get to be able to submit that piece of evidence that proves you're not guilty. You know, some horrible thing like that. Um, so it always does. The good thing about this job is that it does always keep you grounded. Like no matter how bad my day is going at work, my client is always having a worse day than me. So uh, I am curious, um, before you started this particular role, um, what what were your beliefs going into it? Did they differ much from what they do now? So that's actually an interesting question. When I went to law school, I wrote in my application that I wanted to be a public defender because I just thought it was public defender. This is like one thing. And then I got an internship, did it. Uh, it was actually an internship done in Texas. I interned at the B County Regional Public Defender's Office in South Texas. That was fun. Came back and there were some applications for like clinics or internships at my law school. And one was with the Bronx Defenders, which is where I work now. Uh, so I signed up for it, just thinking it would be a public defense, like criminal law internship. And I get there and I'm like, oh, this is a family defense clinic. I didn't even know that, you know, I knew there was a family court. I knew there was child protection courts and whatnot. I did not know they were just as busy as criminal court, if not busier. And that, you know, you have 10 to 20 cases, new cases come in every single day, just in the Bronx. I did not know it was an entire industry. So I kind of went in, you know, you know, head first into this uh, internship learned a whole lot, realized I could litigate every day, be representing people who are you know, in the worst possible positions and therefore doing the most good. And so I just applied for this job afterwards. I said, this is all I want to do is this. Um, so no, I didn't know anything about this beforehand, but I knew I hated the government. I knew that the government has no role to tell you what, you know, how to raise your kids. Uh, and I know that even when the government is well-intentioned and try to help, it usually makes it worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and honestly, this is confirmed all my assumptions of working here. It really, really has. Like, I'll get a case where it's horrible allegations. And I'll be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this person allegedly did this if they did. And then the government will take their kids away and somehow the situation is worse. It just without fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, instantly, you know, that that meddling government meddling it, it just always creates a worse situation and i'm just going to kind of side sideline the conversation here for a second and bring up a little bit of history about your area um mm -hmm. it, I, I were you familiar with the rockefeller laws from way back when oh yeah the rockefeller drug laws yeah so yeah. at one point in time wonderful organizations nonprofits like narcotics anonymous were effectively outlawed in your neck of the woods because it, you know, made it to where no more than one addict can occupy a space at a given time. It, it, you just, you look at that at face value. And I'm sure back then, you know, because the prevailing thought of the day, even in the medical community was once an addict, always an addict, you know, um, there was no, no hope, but yeah. once tangible evidence was being presented to the contrary, you know, places uh, across the country where these meetings were starting to pop up, these laws were still in effect, you know, out there. And um, I don't know. I always found that there's a there's a um, there is a priest. His name is the Junkie Priest. And I don't know if, you know, y'all hear about him or not in, in the law law community out there. But he was a Catholic priest. He never once did a narcotic, but he advocated for for addicts finding recovery. And back before there was anything in the way of treatment, 
Um, okay. He got the label uh, of junkie priest. It was it meant to be a jab and insult from the night night court and, and uh, other, you know, beat cops of, of that day. And mm-hmm. he wore it as a badge of pride, you know, a badge of honor. And um, they, they actually did a, I think it was a 1989 narcotics anonymous world convention. They had him come up and speak and it was in the, in, in a Rockefeller building. Yeah. And uh, he he kind of he he drew those parallels. He said, you know, that how how great is it that the man who created those horrific laws were now inside of his building having this particular meeting? Yeah, but, it, um, it, it, it's funny because uh, around that same time is when Ron Paul was running uh, as a libertarian for president. And my favorite video on the entire internet uh, is Ron Paul on Morton Downey Jr. Morton Downey yes. Jr. Had a show, and he's screaming at him and calling him a junkie but say you want to do drugs on the white house desk like he's like like i want you just not to go to prison for doing drugs like this mm-hmm. that's all and i love going back and watching that because he was so steady then and he kept with that the entire time he was mocked you know, charlie wrangle calls into the episode like he's not even in the studio he calls in congressman charlie wrangle uh, the late congressman he's like no we need the military in the streets we need to round these people up and send them into camps and like by the time he passed away you know, he was completely like, oh, no, we need to end the drug war. You know, the Libertarian Party has been ahead on these issues for 50 years. And, like, you know, we mention it. We make jokes about, like, oh, we're the stoner. We're the Republicans who like weed. Like, no, we're, we're not Republicans at all. We're just ethical people who don't think that you have the right to force people to put things in or not put things into their body. And I, I think it's important a little bit to, to separate, like, drugs being bad from drugs being outlawed. And it's just like what I said with family court. Like when when you when you get the government involved, you're going to make it worse. Like this parent might be horrible, but putting them into the system is gonna be worse for the child most of the time. And mm-hmm. the same thing with outlawing, uh, especially an addictive substance, because it, it's just, it's like giving giving them a challenge to overcome eventually. Like, it, like you have to learn to work around the law. In order to feed your addiction, you have to become a criminal. And like you're essentially incentivizing people to become you know, lawbreakers in other ways, in ways that actually do harm other people. And it, it's it's the most backward system if you actually think about it. Besides the whole moral, like you, know, you don't have the right to tell me this, it just it doesn't work. It makes people worse off, and it makes them harm other people more in their desperation. Yeah, and that's. That's kind of that that whole deal. So not only are you having to come to overcome the addiction, because you'll eventually get to that, but first yeah. you're going to have to overcome this this absolute uh, meat grinder of a criminal justice system. And to couple that with family court, I'm assuming that family court and criminal court are two separate entities. And so, like your clients are not only having to fight for custody, but they're also having to go jump through hoops with probation or. Do y'all have drug court in your area? Is that a thing? It it is. It's not as separate as it is. And I learned in some other states, it's still like in, it's still like the same system, but they have special programs that they'll refer you to essentially as a sentencing or as a plea. Um, So yeah, they are two different systems. And one thing that's interesting that comes up is that if you testify in family court, which you have to, you don't have a right not to testify. They'll hold it against you. I mean, you, you don't physically have to, but if you don't, the first line of the decision will be, I take the strongest possible inference against the respondent for not testifying in his own defense, something you can't do in criminal court. But let's say you have a criminal case and a family case about the same issue. Well, I can't let you testify because that's now a sworn statement. They can bring it over to criminal court. They can put that in. In my criminal law, you know, coworkers would never let the client testify in a case like this. And now all of a sudden I have to start thinking, is there a criminal case now? Could there be a criminal case down the line? So I might have a client saying, I want a hearing right now, an emergency hearing to have my kid back. And I'll say, we can't do it. We can't win without your testimony. And your testimony could incriminate you. you know, I'm not saying you did anything criminal. You use it that way. That What an absolute minefield that is right there. And do you see that happen? Do you see, oh. I mean, obviously with your counsel, they're not going to jump to that, but I'm sure your other you know, you I mean, see it in court. People will push back and be like, no, I want to testify. My job, like the worst in my mind, I would be the worst lawyer possible. If I let a client testify, got their kid back for a week, and then they get charged with a crime because of their testimony and they they lose their kid forever because they go to jail. 
you know, I, I deal with fatality cases sometimes. And sometimes there, there's no criminal case because there's a house full of people and a child is found dead. And no one knows who did it. There's no obvious signs. Maybe it was just natural. Who knows? Um, and so there won't be any criminal case because you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that one specific person did something. In family court, you can say, these people had control of the child. The child is dead. The child would not normally be dead if there was not abuse or neglect. Therefore, you're all charged with abuse and neglect. And all of your children get taken out of the home. They can do that in family court. And I've handled multiple cases like that. Uh, not all of them involving fatalities, but sometimes just severe injuries on a child who can't tell their own story. So whether it's a you know, nonverbal, you know, older child or like an infant who has a broken rib. No one can tell you how the rib broke. Well, you all did it then. You don't have the presumption of innocence. That is mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing right there. I've seen cases where the entire family, you know, the entire extended family will lose their children for over a year in a case like that. So that's, I mean, and what what does that look like? For them. So once the other children get taken out of the home and that accusation is leveled in family court, does that accusation automatically transfer over into a criminal proceeding at that point? So very often not. And and one of the reasons is, you know, in family court, let, let's say a case, an ACS worker, you know, a child investigator goes in and they talk to a kid the day that something allegedly happened. And the kid's like, yeah, like I saw a dad hit mom. Like I saw my dad hit my mom. That child doesn't have to come into court and testify, I saw my dad hit my mom nine months later when the trial eventually happens. The investigator can come in, and if a child made a statement, they can say, this is what the child says, and the judge can accept that. You can't do that in criminal court. So so often there will be just evidentiary issues where you could never prove it in criminal court because you can't have like a five-year-old come in and say something. But in gotcha. family court, that child's statement from however long ago is gospel. Like It, it is what happened in almost every judge's mind. So why would a child lie? Is their thought process? They they kind of leave out you know family dramas and you know life, um, but you know why would a child lie about something like that? You know, I believe them, and I can't cross-examine. All I can do is ask the worker like, did you interview them alone? You know, was was the other you know parent standing over their shoulder like looking at them? You know, like that type of stuff. Um, but you can't cross-examine. Like, you don't have a right to, to question your accuser in family court, and so it's weird because so many more drug cases end up coming into family court than into criminal court. Because in criminal court, you want to say like, oh, the mom was using drugs around the kid. You need a witness who saw the mom, who saw the drugs. You need to find the drugs. You need to test them. These are drugs. Enter them into evidence, blah, blah, blah. In family court, you just need the kid to say one time to the caseworker, I saw my mommy do drugs. And now that's the testimony. That's the whole case. God. Now your client has to prove they don't do drugs. God, I and I um I I more or less lucked out in my own personal story with my daughter. You know, not having to jump through as many of the court things, but I have been present with friends who you know get churned through the family court system out here, and it's so insane standing in that courtroom because I've sat in plenty of criminal court cases. But the family courtroom has a very different feel. You know, it's like, man, it's like the peewee, which is the defense up against the all-stars, which, I mean, you can tell the judge and the prosecutor, they are not worried about a thing because they know they hold all the cards. And it's, it's, always, uh, it, it's always fun to see. the the. So in my courtroom, I, I won't say for all courtrooms, the first chair is the prosecutor's chair. There's no assigned seating. But if I were to sit in the first chair, even in a conference room, the judge or the court attorney would be like, what are you doing, Mr. Howe? That's not your chair. But th there's no law that says that. There's no court rule or posting that says the prosecutor sits in the first chair. But they get the first chair every single time. And like, it's such a tiny little stupid, petty thing. But I, I noticed that. I'm like, wait, why can't I sit in that chair? And they're like, well, that's where the prosecutor sits. Can we start with them? I'm like, well, you, it's not like you can't turn your head back to this direction. Like, get, Go on for trick you want. I got your. It, it, it was such a like there was no there's absolutely no reason for it except that it's clear that deference goes to the first speaker. Deference goes to the person on the left. You know we're going left right. It's how we read. It's how we're conditioned. Left to right. Left to right. And here's a person who, from the judge's point of view, is on the left and they're going first. I mean wow. it, it's such a tiny thing, but these are the things that influence you know judgment. 
There's also those studies that show that if you're in a courtroom in the hour before the lunch break, your your outcomes are much, much, much worse than the hour after the lunch break because the judge is hungry. That that should that should raise the hair on on everybody's back of their neck. You know, just hearing something like that. I think judges should be required to have an IV constantly giving them like uh, you know like that Soylent drink. They're never <laughs> they're never hangry, and uh, they have to treat everyone equally. Yeah. So we've established that you know family court is just orders of magnitude different than than criminal. Uh, it, and the prosecution, the state side, is obviously way way too powerful. So, how, in your opinion, do you think that uh, changing drug policy up? Uh, at least to a decriminalized uh, position. How, how would that affect, you know, the the family court proceedings? Well, one, it would make a lot of it would make it easier for my clients to testify on their own behalf and to you know support their own defense. So they wouldn't have to be hiding half of their life away. You know, mm-hmm. if someone's addicted to an illegal drug, they're still going to be resistant to telling me like what their life is like. Like I'm not going to get a clear picture until they're totally honest with me. Uh, you know, often, you know, my clients will open right up. I'm their lawyer. They'll tell me everything. But some people, you know, it's a it's a private issue and it's, it's, it's a it's a privacy issue and they don't want to talk about that. They're not comfortable with it. Um, I think getting rid of the legal prosecution outcome, the, the potential for any prosecution going and living in a cage like an animal takes a lot off. They can talk about it. Do you know anyone who has gotten clean of a drug without talking about it? No. No, it's very no. difficult to talk about possessing an illegal substance and being a regular user or addict of, a, of an illegal substance. Um, so like, that would help a lot of my clients because it would allow them to talk about it and to go into rehab for it to be less of a stigma uh, and you know, just to get better. Uh, but then also just not having huge criminal records. You know, I'll, I'll have a client come in and they'll be like, oh yeah, she doesn't have any prior family court history. Um, but she got arrested in 1991, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, just reading her entire arrest record, it's all like you know, dealing marijuana, or you know, like you know, sometimes it'll be you know, prostitution or something like that. But they're from the freaking 90s, and but this continues into the future. You know, if my clients get a drug conviction now, 30 years from now, it will be coming up in their family court case, and you can you can get rid of that you know little that little edge that the prosecution always likes to use. Um, but just largely, I think fewer people would be addicts and it would come up much less in family court if drugs were legal. That, that's the bottom line. And I know for non-libertarians, that's where everyone's head explodes. For mm-hmm. libertarians, where everyone does what you just did and, and nods their head. Um, but not only would fewer people be addicts, those who are addicts would be safer. And I always bring a beer, and I know it's a little uncouth on your show, but I always bring a beer to my interview so I can make this point. I just grabbed one at the store on my way way home. Um, I don't think there's any fentanyl in this beer. I'm quite certain there's no fentanyl in this beer. I know where it was made. I can call up Cigar City Brewing. I can you know, air my grievances with them. I can sue them. They can go to jail if they put some poison in my beer. Whereas the guy that you bought from on the corner who bought from someone who bought from someone who bought from someone, you can't follow up. It's not yeah. a market when there's a, a buyer and a mystery supplier. Uh, you know, that's not a real true free market. You have to bring it into the light. You have to bring it into the free market or there is always going to be forever from now on until the day you bo- we both die, there's going to be fentanyl in cocaine. There's going to be fentanyl on your marijuana. There's going to be fentanyl in any white powdery substance, any little ecstasy pill or, or whatever it is you're taking. There's going to be fentanyl in it because there's an incentive to put it in there and it's almost impossible to get caught. And you're going to yeah, die. And- just and, and not only that, but also, you know, uh, cross contamination, you know, I think is a thing um, that we're seeing a lot of these substances, you know, that are showing up in the market that are contaminated with fentanyl. I think that mm-hmm. that's that's definitely the thing. But you if you are able to openly and freely manufacture these products, you know, in actual facilities that aren't, you know, some backwoods sketched mm-hmm. out, you know, location, I don't think you'd have that problem. I really don't. Yeah. No um, one is going blind from drinking, you know, whiskey anymore. Mm-hmm. That was happening during the prohibition. You know, they would make the wrong kind of, I don't know anything about making alcohol, even though my brother's a brewer, but they would make the wrong kind of alcohol and they would go blind. You know, they, they would, it, it was a thing. You know, 
I, I know during World War II, Russian uh, soldiers were drinking the uh, the antifreeze because they knew it was alcohol. It's also the wrong type of alcohol, and they would go blind. Um, they didn't know what was in it. The the only role of government really in the market is to help you prosecute people who have wronged you and to encourage transparency by prosecuting people who have wronged you by not being transparent. Uh, so like labeling, great. Yeah, that's what should be on drugs. It should be a labeling. Shouldn't be, you know, these fancy designs from the guy that you buy on from the corner. I love going to a nice legal weed store and tell you the exact percentages of each you know, terpene and chemical and you can compare the two. That's how it should be. If you want yes. your heroin with fentanyl in it, okay. But I don't think anyone wants that. I've never had a client tell me they're a fentanyl addict. Yeah, I, I think what, what we started to see, at least out here, is a uh, surgence of people who ended up getting heroin that had fentanyl in it, right? And then that was their supplier. And they got used to that extra little, you know, kick. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, that they, they ended up, you know, kind of getting getting hooked on that that level of figured out it was that was the secret ingredient mm -hmm. and so you know for for a while at least you know when i was dealing with a lot of opiate addicts that was kind of a conversation that they would have with their dealer like you know if it doesn't have fentanyl, i don't want it you know which is it's wild to to actually hear something like that but you know it tracks it makes sense yeah um i did kind of want to have you uh touch base on you, you made the point that we would have less addicts overall. And I agree, but I want to hear why you think we would have less addicts in that scenario. Well, one, we would destroy fewer communities because putting human beings in cages, separating them from their families, destroys communities. When you have destroyed communities, you have destroyed individuals, you have, you have hopeless people who are more susceptible to the temptation that you know many addictive substances offer. Uh, but then also, I think that you know, for some people, going and being imprisoned is a cold turkey way to quit and they get out and they're okay. Very few people though. Uh, so we would actually be treating people instead of putting them in cages. Instead of putting them in cages with people who know how to get the things that they want when they get out, learning skills that are going to make them, you know, a negative uh, impact on society instead of a positive one with an addiction. Um, I mean, it's basically that, you know, it, it attacks it from all ends. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're extending addiction by punishing it criminally instead of treating it medically. Uh, and we're destroying communities, which makes people more susceptible to addiction. Yeah. And I think uh, just to kind of expand on that, 100% agree. I think also when you have a free market where, you know, retailers are able to be transparent about the origins of a substance, what's in the substance, you also have education that comes mm -hmm. along with that, you know. Um, right now you see a lot of bro science. Like I know back when I first started shooting heroin, you know, the guy who got me hooked up with my first, uh, you know, quantity that I bought said, listen, don't do this stuff for any more than three days in a row and you won't get dope sick. <laughs> you know, there is no scientific bearing on that whatsoever. Oh, I, but, I've read the studies. You're good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Whereas that's what we have now, I think in, in a free market, you would have transparent, open dialogue with the retailer. You know, that retailer consumer relationship would be able to kind of bridge that gap uh, between understanding and, and you know, rumor. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the great points that you made there um, in the time um, and that, that you've been there, I, I know that. What we saw happen, especially in 2020 and, and various elections across the country, was that drug policy tends to seems to have taken a hit. And in New York, you know, uh, did, didn't y'all get recreational in 2020 or did that happen beforehand? Kind of. I mean, we got it in 2020. Yeah. But it's okay. still, you can possess it. You can't buy it. You can't give it. You can't grow it. Um, what? So once they get the commission set up to set up the licensing for the committees to do the stores, to do the blah, 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 blah. Once the first store opens, whenever that is, 18 months after that, you're allowed to grow your own. So it's perfectly legal. So someone I know has some that's growing. And if the police knock down that person's door, all that person has to do is just cut the base of the plant. You're no longer growing it. 
Now you're just in possession. That is <laughs> not legal advice. This is not legal advice to anyone watching, uh, but someone I know might try it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, that is that is slick. What a crazy policy, though. It's so dumb. Like they're, they're telling people, go buy stuff illegally. Like, because it's still illegal to purchase it and to sell it and like to possess it with intention to sell it. But you can possess it. So where is it coming from? We're, like, we're either sending our tax money to some other state where you know, someone's <clears throat> buying it over there and reselling it here or supporting the black market still. But just Larry Sharp is the guy running for governor here. He ran in 2018. He's one of the best libertarians on the planet. Yeah, and he, he came up with the saying, uh, legalize marijuana and regulate it like onions. And I love it. I can't think of any better way to put it. Just it's legal. It's a plant. You can make rope out of it. You can smoke it. You choose. Right. Um, okay. So I know 2020 was that was that vote. Did y'all ever have uh, medicinal? Did it start out as medicinal? We, we had medicinal was like the, the card, but the only type you could get was uh, edibles or bakes. You couldn't get flour. What? So we never had like a, Yeah. So we didn't have much of a growing industry because it was just growing for uh, – for making those products, you know, for distillates and whatnot, but nothing that could be smoked. And look, I'm going to give them a little bit of credit for that because no one has ever said that smoking marijuana is good for your health. No one has ever prescribed someone to go smoke a joint. Like it's still bad for you to smoke. And I I know that because I smoke. Like I'm quite sure that it's bad for me to do it that way. But, you know, there is medicinal value in cannabis and many of its, you know, effects. So saying edibles or vaping, like that's actually the government almost being a little bit honest with with itself. Like there's no medical way to smoke marijuana. So that actually kind of made sense. So I wasn't all that big about it. I just think it's stupid to to say what you can take as medicine or what you can take recreationally in the first place. Uh, so my, my issue is more with the idea that you can regulate it at all. Um, but if you're going to say like this is for medicine, that light it on fire and inhale it into your lungs. <laughs> that's that's a little bit much. Uh, I think we've, we've, yeah. we've gone beyond that. Now, look, I, I love that we were able to control the government for all these years. And I'd be like, no, it's medicine. Like, I got my card for my in my anxiety. Not to put down people with anxiety, but you know what was going on. Like, people were just getting cards because they wanted to buy weed. Right. Uh, good. Like, we got to troll the government. We got to show blatant disrespect for this their set of regulation, and that's how we mocked. The prohibition out of existence almost like we're, we're making progress i know i'm whining about it and the can't grow weed yet but like we have left this prohibition out of existence we, we made fun of it and i think a big part that really allowed us to tip it was ron paul 2008 because all of a sudden there's a respected republican on the republican stage saying legalize marijuana and we went from like five percent of republicans who are okay with that to like 30 percent. so now that's 70 percent of the country uh, it, was, it was a huge move. I, I think Ron Paul was instrumental in that. Um, and I, it's something I thought would never happen. Like, I remember thinking in 2012 or 2008, even, like, we're never going to legalize weed. It's so obvious. I can't believe we won't. Now, we've done so much more dumb stuff since then that, it, you know, it, it's evened out. But the fact that we've moved this far, we as libertarians, we as people who, you know, promote liberty should be really enthused by that. Like, yeah. it's something that can never happen. It's been going on for, you know, 65, 70 years, and it changed. And it, it was largely, in most places that it happened, it was bipartisan, meaning it was something in the middle. It wasn't Republicans or Democrats. It was some movement in the middle. And honestly, that movement in the, in the middle is libertarianism with a small L. And we just need to tell people that and show them that and show them the history, prove it to them. And we have to prove it to them. Like, we are who you've wanted to vote for the whole time. Yeah. I agree. I think a lot of people have been, you know, libertarian leaning as, you know, if, if not full on libertarian uh, and just never knew what it was um, yeah. too often. You know, I had, I had a guy at work, the guy who cooks at our, at our, at the facility I work at, I, he was like, uh, I don't know why the fuck it, you, you shouldn't talk about politics at work ever, but it got brought up and, you know, he asked me, you know, where do I lean? I said, Oh, I'm a libertarian. He's like, Oh, are, are you racist? I said, <laughs> no man i i don't consider myself to be but that was his conception you know that's all he knows you know yeah and, and every time i say it here it's oh so you like Rand paul you're like a Rand paul guy oh, man. i'm like dude come like of all the 
of everybody you could name. Like, libertarian. Yeah. I'm like, no, it says R next to his name. It literally says R. I know I spent all day talking about his dad, but he's very different. And are the things that I love Rand Paul on? Yeah, like he's done a good job on some things. But as far as like me having supported him back when he originally ran for for Senate, I'm pretty disappointed in him. You know, there's some good stuff, but I, I consider him a massive disappointment. What we need to show people is that the things that they've been protesting in the streets about, the libertarians have been you know, talking on message boards about since 1971 or sending out newsletters about since 1971. Like we, you know, we were for marriage equality in 1971. We were for ending the drug war before we called it the drug war. You know, all these things we've been leaders on. Uh, inflation, like what a time for me to be running. I've been a Federal Reserve nerd for the past 20 years. And now all of a sudden inflation, people remember what it is. I'm not happy that it's happening, but like this is the time for libertarians to say, we are the party of the moment. Like we saw all this coming. You know, mm -hmm. We were on the right side of history and all these things that you say you want for the future. We've been saying that too. Like let's, let's align our values here. Uh, and it, again, it's been really rewarding to see all the progressive people that I've spoken to have been really on board. Uh, one of my biggest supporters, so I'm going to be making a commercial with soon, uh, this guy, Edwin de Jesus, and he ran for city council here at the Green Party. He's far left Green Party guy, uh, but he's anti-vax and he hates Pfizer. You know, he, you know, he was leading the March for Medicare for All on AOC's office before I was even running. Um, so, so he's like the, you know, he and people like him are the representation of these you know, well-intentioned progressives. And we have to remember that most of them are very, very well-intentioned. They think that their system will work. We don't have to agree on whether you know, MMT works, because that's not going to happen in the four years that I'm going to be in office. But we can agree on what doesn't work and what we can end right now. We can end our foreign adventurism. We can end the war on drugs. We can end so many of these big, horrible, you know, violent government agencies. Um, and then we can step back. And if they want to have a managed economy after that, okay, I did my part. Um, I know what's wrong. I don't necessarily know how to fix every single thing. But I think the first rule of government should be to do no harm. And we can if we can stop the government from doing harm together in line with the progressives, I consider that a victory. Man, I wish I lived in your area just so I could vote for you. Man, you got you carry a very strong message. Uh, your finger is on the pulse. Man, I'm so glad to see you out there running and, and spreading this message. Um, I really appreciate that. You, you're welcome to move here. I mean, it's... Oh. Uh, <laughs> You, you can't go out to eat without your vaccine passport, but the, the food is incredible. <laughs> the, the people are not rude. They're funny. You know, people think like, oh, New York is a rude. No, they're just being funny. Yeah. Uh, come, come, at least come visit. It, I we do need, need to do that. To visit, especially once we open back up, if that ever happens. And I pray it does. Uh, yeah, I'm working to make sure it does. It really is a great city. Um, we're embarrassing ourselves right now. We're, we're shaming ourselves right now. We're putting a huge blotch on on our legacy here. Uh, and the sooner we get it turned around, the sooner you can come visit and I'll, I'll bring you up some, some real barbecue here in New York. I'm all in, man. I am all in. Well, uh, <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on, hanging out. Um, like I said, I, I, I really want the audience to have a chance to support you. How can we do that? How can we help out your campaign? So the, the easiest way, everything is on how2022.com. That's H-O-W-E. 2022, the numbers.com. Uh, and what we really need now, I mean, A, I need donations. Uh, you know, I, I need to print out flyers. I need to get, hire people to help me get on the ballot. But the main thing is that second part, getting on the ballot. The Libertarians had a ballot line. We met the requirements. We got a permanent ballot line in 2018, thanks to Larry Sharp and his gubernatorial campaign. In 2020, they retroactively changed the requirements. So we no longer have a ballot line. So AOC has to go out and get something like a thousand signatures to get back on the ballot or just get endorsed by the, the state. But any of her challengers on the Democratic line just needs like a thousand signatures. I need three and a half times as many as what? an independent candidate because we don't have an established party anymore because they changed the rules for what an established party is. So for me to get on, I need 3,500 signatures. Um, they're going to challenge the signatures saying like, oh, that's not a real signature. We, really, we need double that. We need about 7,000. Um, Larry Sharp is going to need, I think, 50,000. Um, we're likely going to have someone running for, for U.S. Senate who will need that as well. Uh, so if you're in New York, anywhere in the state, doesn't have to be in New York City, or if you're nearby, April 19th, I think through May 26th, if you can spare a weekend in there to come in and help us get signatures, that's what we need. You don't need to spend any money. 
one of our campaigns will we'll, you know, tell you where to come, where to show up. We'll give you the paper. We'll show you what to do. We just need the signatures. If you want to see a libertarian presence in New York, which is where you know ideas spread from, like it or not, you need to go to my website. You need to donate. You need to go to Larry Sharp's website. You need to donate there or just come show up, spend one day, spend five hours, get 25 signatures. That's all it takes. We have 100 people do that. We're good. Yeah, um, any, yeah. any any little bit, I, I would imagine, on something like that. That signature gathering process, man, that is a – that's crazy. Especially increasing the numbers during a pandemic. You know, They're the ones yeah, saying, if you're an emergency, don't go outside. And they're also the ones saying, but go get 3,500 signatures from strangers. It's a sham. It's an Hand them the pen and then take the pen back. <laughs> Like it, it shows that they re- that they really don't actually care about health and safety. That it's all a charade or yeah, charade. That they're they're just trying to exert power and to, and to maintain their own power. Uh, but again, how twenty twenty two? There's a sign up form for volunteers. You can go to my Twitter at Jonathan C How H O W E. Follow me there. Send me a message. Tell me you want to volunteer. If you're upstate, I can bring you to some libertarians who are upstate to get them signatures. If you're somewhere, you know. Out of state, and you want to help phone bank, we can set you up. We, we just need manpower. I mean, I've got four or five people who are working on this campaign as hard or harder than me. And at this point, like, I got into it saying I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to let them down. Like, people are really believing in this, and we're, we're actually gaining a little bit of momentum. Uh, and we just need to get on the ballot to push it over that edge. I believe you're going to do it. No doubt in my mind, man. We'll make it happen. But yeah, guys, if you're listening, go go check them out. Go help out with that in any way you can. Uh, once again, Jonathan, and expect a clean libertarian uh, donation to your campaign once our theft check comes back in the mail here in the next couple of months. Um, we'll help you out. But man, brother, thanks a lot. And I look forward to seeing what you accomplish. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me on. It was a, it was a good time. Absolutely. Anytime, man. Have a good one. There you go. Thanks a lot, Jonathan, for coming on, man. You, Like I told you guys, this is somebody who absolutely knows how to deliver this message with not only just the, the baseline topics, but also the nuance to back it up. So um, this, is an, this is an ambassador for liberty. This is somebody who's spreading the message in the right way. So if you have the ability, go over to how2022.com. I'll also have that website in the show notes description. And Donate anything you can, man. You're talking about somebody who is running against an incumbent like AOC. I mean, you want to talk about an, an opponent from hell. Like this man is going to have to campaign his tail off. So um, anything that you can do, any any amount that you can chip in, please go do so. And if you are actually in New York City, in the area, around the Bronx, go help that man gather some signatures because that that is another very needed resource that that man's going to need to have. So uh, anyways, thanks a lot to you guys for tuning in, for checking out the show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to leave you guys with a tune I just recently heard on Spotify. I know nothing about this band except that I just really like this song. The band is called Granddaddy, and the song is called AM 180. So without any further ado, here is Granddaddy.
Take on whatever together